Welcome to Story Archaeology's Stories in the Landscape, Conversations on Mythology, with Chris Thompson at storyarchaeology.com. In the first of these new conversations, I get to talk with Irish archaeologist and historian Daniel Curley. Daniel, tell us about yourself. Thank you very much, Chris. My name is Daniel Curley. I'm the manager of Rathcrohan Visitor Centre. I've been the manager here for the last nine years now, and I'm an archaeologist and a historian and very much interested in our own local place here of Rathcrohan. And all the stories in the landscape that there are around you. I remember when I first went to Rathcrohan, it must have been rather a long time ago, about 30 years ago. But before that, it was one of the places of my dreams, a place where the stories came from. And I was so excited to actually get there for real. I'd read about and imagined it, and now I was finally there, standing on Rathgrafen Mound. But of course, that was before the visitor's centre was there, wasn't it? What are your first impressions of uh, the Rathgrafen area? Yeah, I, I suppose the first time I, I came up to Rathgrafen, it was as a as a young master's student in NUI Galway, and I had uh, had uh, persuaded after after a college meal with, with an invited lecturer that I would uh, I would bring this lecture on the the sights and sounds of medieval Roscommon, and I started at Boyle Abbey and uh, journeyed south from Boyle Abbey, and I stopped at Rathcrohan, and I was. I suppose not fully aware of the the breadth and 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 the huge views that could be taken in as you stood at the top of Rathcrohan Mound and perceived this this huge broad plateau this huge broad area that could be seen from you know not not a very high up but I mean everything was everything was so well populated with uh, interesting nooks and crannies and and you know humps and bumps in the landscape that were plainly um, archaeological and put there by our ancestors and it just struck me. Um, as I started working here then some years later and I, I started making my journeys up from South West Common up to Tulsk and Rathcrohan, you know, this this plateau again, just just you know, opening up in front of my eyes, this really good quality land, this this beautiful kind of vista that starts to emerge and um, that kind of starts to persuade you as to why people have seen this place as a very important place for such a long period of time. So it was, it was quite breathtaking and something that uh, I marvel at even today. You, you can feel the stories there. It's cattle land, it's cleared land, it's farmland. And you can feel that it's been like that for a very, very long time. For me, it was the stories that brought me there. I just consumed everything I could get hold of. So for me, it was almost like a dream standing on the mound for the first time that now I was there in that landscape. And then, of course... Visiting the real Oanagat, I read about it so often, and I wasn't actually sure it would be there. And it wasn't so easy to find. But when I found it, it made a big impression. It was almost as though the stories were like an image overlay across the landscape. And as I say, it's not too difficult with the windy pastures of Roscommon, is it? Well, absolutely. I mean, it's it's really a case that when I started at Rathcrohan, you know, coming from an archaeological point of view, you know, the mythology was one thing. There were, in my mind at the time, nearly like fairy stories. There, there were something that didn't really fit in from a scientific perspective. But it's only through really investing yourself into the story of Rathcrohan, seeing it alongside the, the landscape, seeing it alongside the archaeology. Uh, and then that whole picture then starts to emerge. And stories that are 1500 years old, older, in fact, mm. and, and, you know, reaching back into the depths of time. Uh, and then equating them and those descriptions with 
with real sites, real places that are still there for us to inspect. The cave is very much along those lines. Every corner you take, every road you take, and you, you mentioned there it's cattle country. Like if you, you start walking around and you can hear the stories, even the place names that are associated with the area. When a group comes with us, it's a case that I want them to see the knitting together of archaeology, mythology, um, the stories in the landscape. Yeah. No, it has to be a story in the landscape. I've been obsessed with archaeology since I was a child, but I didn't have an opportunity to train as an archaeologist. I planned to, but my father talked me out of it. At the time, he said it was no job for a woman and I'd never make any money. He was probably right, but that's beside the point. <laughs> so therefore, I suppose I came in from the textual end, looking for evidence and discovering that the two did come together. You know, visiting story sites in Ireland, though, it can present challenges. I mean, it's not like visiting the Parthenon or the pyramids. There is so much to see, and Ireland is so rich, but it's sometimes not obvious unless you're familiar with the stories and the history. It's interesting how people get a misconception because we don't have standing remains so much. A postcard I found on my first visit to Ireland with what looks like an American couple encountering um, a rough or something like, like that. And the caption reads, oh, look, John, it's another Fogra. <laughs> and I think that just about sums it up. You need interpretation. And I think that's why the visitor centre is so important and how it's really enriched the area. Tell us a bit more about the visitor centre. So, yeah, the visitor centre was set up in 1999. It was set up based upon a whole series of archaeological surveys that were undertaken at Rathcrawan by NUI Galway, by the University in Galway, um, across the 1990s. And I suppose that inspired the local community to see whether there is a possibility of providing interpretation for the visitor and, you know, the the untold riches you know of mythological mm. and archaeological wealth that is is all around us here in Tulsk and and in a little further west as you go to Rathcrawan and that's really what started the whole process and I suppose really when you consider it from the raw material that we have in terms of the literature it 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 does allow us um opportunities to I suppose if, if we're confident enough, and I think confidence is the only thing, you know, because the material and the knowledge is there, but it's, if we're confident enough to, to present the case of Rathcrohan and of the Thorn and of Maeve and Alal and the great feasting halls and the palaces, and if you can convey that image through storytelling to a visitor out of Rathcrohan Mound, that's what captures the imagination. So, mm. you know, the, the beauty of the cross-section between the archaeological discoveries at Rathcrohan coupled with the mythological stories is that you can start uh, interweaving these two narratives to create a, a combined and joint narrative that sometimes doesn't always end up in the same location as you'd intended, you know, or perhaps <laughs> literature doesn't exactly correspond with the archaeology or vice versa. But in reality, once you conceive of them in equality and try and make sense and pick apart, like, I mean, you're, you're going, you're, you're enabling your visitor to go on a journey with you. Mm. And, and I agree wholeheartedly, you know, it's difficult to, you know, kind of picture or perceive, you know, these once great structures that would have topped Rathcrohan Mound or its near vicinity or, or what the cave might have presented as a thousand or two thousand years ago in terms of, you know, how it was, you know, maintained or minded or, or, or kind of uh, created, you know, in terms of displays or visuals for, for the visitor. But that, that's in part the beauty of it as well. If, if you knew all the answers to it, would it really be as uh, enjoyable an experience? But if your imagination is allowed to run wild, and, and, you know, use the, the pockets of mythology and the pockets of literature uh, alongside what you know 
um, and and just kind of and I suppose let let your own thoughts go wild in, in the process as well. That's when the real beauty um, hits, I think. And it's it's just trying to you know give the the visitor, give the the, the person that's out there with you um, the tools to to, to mm. go on the journey. And you know sometimes you know it, it, you have to you have to break. Uh, certain narratives to, to begin with because <laughs> yes. first, you know one of the things we always like to say is like people may have an expectation of going on an outdoor guided tour of a heritage site in, in Ireland and we want to we want to break that notion immediately we also want to break certain ideas about what Iron Age Ireland is like mm-hmm. and what early medieval Ireland is like you know it, there's great fun in doing that um, because you're, you're, you're watching people's you know traditionally held thoughts uh kind of slip away or or the fight you know the fight the the, the onset of, of a change of mind um but at the end invariably they come to our way of thinking and that's the main thing as, as, as we come about it it's so much richer and so much more intricate a finely woven tapestry mm-hmm. than merely the story of Alil and Maeve having an argument and then a battle there's so much more to it than that I was delighted when the visitor center opened and I've loved working with you all in recent years, and I've been involved with various projects, and particularly the connections with the Torn Mart, you know, the launch on the hill, except the last time uh, we did it for live in, what was it, uh, 2019, when we ended up with nearly 400 children and their teachers on the mound, yeah. which was probably too many. <laughs> <laughs> do you remember that? <laughs> Absolutely, I do, yeah. I mean, I suppose the, the one thing I, I yeah, completely like, from a logistical point of view, it, it can be a bit of a challenge, but the one thing that kind of captures my imagination with all of that is that when you have a great glut of people at Rathcrohan Mound and on the summit of it or in its near vicinity, you know, you're, you're, setting, you're setting kind of uh, landmark moments because it could be the, wow. first, the first time since way back in the distant past of an Enoch that that gathering of people was in that space and I, I think there's something beautiful about that particularly when it's the young local school children that are, that are, that are and that are all engaged. all excitedly yeah. shouting for for mother and for her and uh, and for Rathcrohan no it was magnificent but now in the last couple of years there's been opportunities because of the pandemic we've had to try out new ways of working so we've actually held two years now with the schools of Rathcrohan being involved in uh, an online um, I suppose, yeah, like, I mean, and th- th- that's the beauty of what we can do, you know, there's, there's this level of freedom that because we're a community run visitor centre as well, we're not tied to specific opening seasons, we're not tied to only running the day to day or turning the key and letting people in and then closing up after them. It's a case that we have a little bit more freedom to be able to have conversations, to be able to engage in projects, to be able to bring Rathcrohan to different communities uh, in various different ways. So, I mean, it could be in the form of archaeology conferences, Halloween related events, presenting to different groups, particularly with the, the pandemic that enabled us to to get used to dealing with uh, digital forms of presentation. So we had to engage with the remote side of things to try and get the story and, and keep Rathcrohan on people's minds and, and on, on the map. So, I mean, that also allowed us, you know, to engage in different ideas um, that we're trying to bring to fruition. Like we're, we're trying to work on a walking trail at the present. We have a farming project out of Rathcrohan that deals with 45 farmers. I like to think about it as Rathcrohan being a resource for the communities that live and work. Could be from farming, it could be from culture and heritage and promotion and tourism, it could be from all 
manner of different things, but to kind of allow Rathcrohan to serve as the opportunity for that and the resource for communities. So that is a vibrant place into the future, because undoubtedly that's that's where its origins lay and lie um, way back into the distant past. Oh, it's a, you know, it really is a cent- the centre of the community, just as Rathcrohan always was. Oh, by the way, it's also got a very good cafe, hasn't it? <laughs> yeah, we would like to think so, anyway, at least. Yeah. I think so. <laughs> Look, we were talking about the archaeology of the area. I know it, it's not just Iron Age archaeology. Um, we've been talking about how Rathcrohan is a very old site, but you're on the ground. Can you talk a bit more about the archaeology of the area around Rathcrohan? Of course. I mean, if, if we conceive of the core of the area, the, there's about 240 archaeological sites identifiable. Um, within an area of about 6.5 square kilometers. So it's, it's a basically a big plateau, big flat raised hill. The earliest remains that we can see at Rathcrohan, uh, still visible above the ground surface, is actually a Neolithic court tomb from about 5,200 years ago. And that's our first indication of communities residing at Rathcrohan. Um, and then basically every era up to the present day has left some imprint on the landscape. So with our first kind of indications through the Neolithic period, which is when the first farmers are arriving on the Irish landscape, it's conceivable that at that point in time, even that the great open plain of Crookan would have been relatively less forested and would have been easier to clear. So you mentioned the clearing of the, the, the forestry or an open space, and that's probably the point in time when that begins to occur. So that plateau becomes cleared at a relatively early date. Then as you move into the Bronze Age and the Iron Age, we're looking at a huge amount of burial mounds located out on the landscape. And these are primarily earthen burial mounds. Uh, we've got 28 of them identifiable, mm-hmm. and they correspond then with the, the literary device that mentions that Crookan is home to 50 mounds and mm. each within it, you know, 50 warriors. And, you know, that that that's it's interesting and, and it might sound very kind of neatly packaged in 50 and 50 and so on. But when you actually look at the, the remains, there's, there's at least 28 burial mounds there and there's probably as many as 50, if not more, if we go inspect. Well, in the text, 50 meant just a complete number. It yep. seems to be in the Irish text, A50. There's always 50 women accompaniment, 50 young men as foster sons. Yes. It's always A50. <laughs> and, and I mean, it just it just shows that there's a multiplicity of them. I know. Mm. And, um, and then as we get into the late Iron Age, and that's the period when we see Rathcrown, we think, at its, at its peak of powers, really. You're looking at a huge... Um, series of different uh, large-scale communal efforts of labour. Um, so the construction of Rathcrohan Mound, the construction of a huge enclosure around it. Uh, it's a 360 metres in diameter of an enclosure. It's basically a large circular ditch. And this ditch was dug five metres wide and dug one metre deep into the bedrock. It was rock cut in places and internally fenced off. I mean, even even the, the physical nature of, of constructing and maintaining that uh, would have required a, a huge force of people to, to undertake. And uh, I remember we had a recent farm uh, meeting with the, the farmers of Rathcrohan and there was 15 in the training group. And I did a, a neat calculation as to how there was 15 in the group. And I, I said, well, how long is it going to take for us to dig this um, 360 metre enclosure? And it, it took, I think, 376 days for us to complete that task. So you can imagine the amount of labour and effort that was involved in that in its own right. I mean, the mucklas, which are a set of huge linear features, earthen features, ditch and bank um, linears. And they're they're ranging in, in, in size from, you know, 100 metres being the shorter of the two um, sets of linears. And then the longer one is 285 metres in full length. So again, these are huge feats of uh, engineering works 
And they just are a testament, I suppose, to the wealth and power and authority that could be drawn upon so that these great uh, feats could be placed out on the landscape. When we're looking at the early medieval period out of Rathcrawan, there's still a continuity of settlement out there. You've got a further 19 ring forts and enclosures, which would be the settlement sites of the, um, the elite and the minor elite out there. And thereafter, then you, you've also got a church site being located out there on the eastern slopes of it, which seems to actually be a little bit off um, off the top of the plateau and maybe with deliberacy as well as Christianity arrives on the, on the, on the scene. And, and then as you go into the later medieval period, you see a whole suite of these um, linear features that are basically matrices of medieval field boundaries. And they show that that particular layer of the canvas is very evident, even though they're not actually all recorded monuments. So you're, you can actually literally tell the recorded settled history of Ireland from within that six and a half square kilometre area. Ireland's got these wonderful centres and, and of course Rathcrossan is one of the most important of them. Though you mentioned that if it's an important site, a church will get placed on it. And it's, it's funny how it's, it's kind of placed there, but it's not placed, you know, right, right front and centre. It's not as if it's an Awan Maka being replaced by Armagh, kind of on the fringe and, and kind of nearly like uh, encroaching slowly onto what was is a major focal point of the, uh, the, the conic landscape. A little bit of claiming being done. As, as Christianity arrives on the scene, that that's even just on the plateau itself. I mean, as you drop off the plateau in all in all directions, north, south, east, and west, you're 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 encountering a whole pan- panoply of additional sites from from the the Cairn Free Ridge south of Tulsk, which has oh, yeah. sixteen burial mounds on, on its ridge as well. You've got Rathra down outside of um, Castle Plunkett, which is a beautiful multi-valet enclosure with a huge sequence of activity there. Um, recently, the subject of a, of a new guidebook. You've got Rathkeneely, you've got Tulsk itself, you've got the Cranogs that are the killing into Strokestown. I mean, the whole place is just literally, and without being, um, without being too cheeky, you know, you're literally, you've got too much archaeology as you try and understand it all. No, it's, it's just it's wonderful. Circuit, you know? No, I was just thinking of, you said about the church set to one side. I was just thinking of Arda Hill with the, the churches again on the big enclosure at the bottom of Breleth. Exactly. It, we talk about those best-known stories, the Tolan and so forth. They belong to the early medieval, although I, I grew up in the UK. It breaks clearly into Iron Age, Roman, uh, so-called Dark Ages, which weren't dark at all, mm-hmm. the Anglo-Saxon and so forth. Whereas in Ireland, you, you, you have the early medieval kind of blends into the Iron Age. There's no Roman interruption even though the early medieval has very strong connections with the continent. Completely, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, it's the way in which we study um, the, you know, the medieval and the Iron Age past in Ireland. We have this more blended uh, or flow, in parts of the country at least, through time. Because, I mean, even into the late medieval... Particularly in the West. Yeah, oh, completely. As you cross the Shannon, like, I mean, as you, as you go into, into Gaelic Ireland... Um, you're you're looking at you know late medieval 16th century poems being written you know in praise of you know your your elites and they're talking about Kruken as if it was you still know, as just as important yeah, as ever exactly as if nothing had changed you know and and to hold on to that level of of uh, attachment and authority and, and symbolic importance of Rathcrohan when you know at that point in time the settlement probably has by and large moved away from it from an elite standpoint. It's it's unique. The early oral stories blend into literary versions so naturally. When they become written, they still contain so much of the earlier Iron Age context. We don't have to look 
too deeply before we can start seeing you know reflections of that deep past um which which you know it's 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 a beauty to behold and it's something that we're very very uh lucky to have in the in, on this island you know this level of continuity now one of the things that was struck me as interesting is um, we were talking about the the few Iron uh, Iron Age sites. I'm still giving it that name. Very early medieval sites. Isn't there, I think, evidence for a significant population drop in that Iron Age early medieval period? Yeah. So I mean, when we consider the relatively the, the invisible um, peoples of the Iron Age, the fact that there's very little uh, for us to be able to see, it does also correspond with a period that certain parts of the Iron Age. Um, we see a lot of clearance of land and we see a lot of farming and agriculture uh, turning up in the paleo environmental record. So when, when people are doing pollen analyses uh, chronologically through time, but you can also see periods in which native woodland starts to to repopulate or starts to become more abundant again uh, in, this, in the exact same areas. So when a pollen core is taken, you can you know start to reconstruct what this landscape looked like at given points in the past. So there is this period in the late Iron Age and the early medieval period where you see uh, a regrowth of what had been previously uh, uh, a quelled um, natural forestry in a natural woodland. And uh, yeah, it, it, it seems possibly to correspond with with a number of incidents that take place in that late Iron Age, early medieval period, you know, natural disasters, the possibility of plague. And yeah, that's something that's really interested me because of the there was a definite population drop in the mid to late 6th century, for mm. instance. I mean, the Justinian yeah. Plague. I, I think that was around 540, but it would have reached Ireland slightly later. It hit Ireland very badly. And it has been suggested that this population drop might have brought about the amalgamation of many minor kingdoms under the rule of fewer or stronger or just surviving chieftains. But you, you actually see an echo of that in the later medieval period as well, where you see um, population um, drop. Uh, possibly consistent with aspects of, of the Black Death. You see a rural depopulation and then a corresponding scramble to collect as many of those that can work the land in a given territory. And, and this freedom that people that would have worked the land, these, these um, I suppose, lower strata of society, are, are a little bit more free to move to better terms nearly every season. So, I mean, you're looking at that occurring time and time again. You know, history repeating itself in some respects. I wonder if this is reflected in the torn cycle itself and maybe the one of the sources for the underlying sense of melancholy mm. and loss in its many tales and even the battle to amalgamate groups under major rulers who are fighting for prominence in a a world that's where suddenly space for them of course yeah i mean there's the possibility of nearly a, a mad max type situation where there's a little <laughs> bit more chaos involved in the world and, and you're trying to stake your claim and, and, and kind of grapple for power within that you know and it's interesting that in studying some of the stories of the town there's a lot about children and childbirth and the betrayal of natural processes that's repeated as a sort of subtext to the stories and I'd never thought about it being connected with population drop and loss of families. And yet this may be part of what's going on. And why the Torn is actually, it is quite a sad story in many ways. 
I suppose it has something in it for everyone. You know, if if you're looking for the lost Iron Age, um, you you can you can grapple with aspects of it. But if you're looking for it as a, a tragedy, there's got comedic aspects to it. It's got a oh, whole yeah. litany mater- material that can, you know, the the great storytelling epic that that's going to have us all gripped around around the feasting hall fires. But I was thinking about that underlying um, battle for power. And it's it's so much of this is how not to run a country. <laughs> Having been through the pandemic for the last two years, you start thinking about things in a slightly different way. And it suddenly struck me that it, it was the story of chaos for, for some reason that wasn't really understood. That's, it's just a thought in passing. Well, I mean, it has it has a, it has a great value to it. I mean, it's something that needs to be explored that little bit more in light of what we can see now. And I mean, that's that's possibly one of the things that the likes of the pandemic is going to teach us as well is that we're, we have to look at the world in a different manner as we get off the, the you know the hamster wheel for a period and, and are reflecting. And they're rich stories, and they keep on giving. Yeah. But look, talking about the stories, look, what are your favourite stories? Well, in many respects, I mean the 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 one that really catches my imagination and would would be Nocturnera and Nera's adventure. In in some respects, it's so fantastical, and in other respects, it's bearing testament to you know folkloric devices that people are engaging in into the twentieth century in Ireland. And I think that that's really important as you're trying to explain to a visitor how the links between the modern you know global festival of Halloween um, has its origins and roots in Ireland and at Rathcrohan. And uh, you're you're trying to piece that information together for them by treating with something that is this this beautiful you know confused uh, strange um, malevolent uh, creation in in Nocturnera. Well, that's it. You've got so much folklore in there, but you've also got that uh, wonderful device of carrying the corpse on the back, and that yeah. only turns up yeah. in one other story I can think of connected with the Dagda and a modern nineteenth century version connect- collected by Yeats and various other people. It's an incredible um, storyteller's device. It's really, you can really sort of... You can visualise it, yeah. Oh, yeah, and the corpse that's reaching cool. out and pointing. Yeah. and it's, it, yeah. That's great fun. Yeah. But I think the other thing, it's one of the best stories to explain the concept of the Irish other world. Mm. It's not an underworld. Yeah. It's, not in, it's not in the future. It's not about after death. It's just there. Exactly. The world of action and the world of imagination, and they both consist concurrently. They're both there. It's just when you move from one to the other, there are consequences. So I tell kids, did you know there's a time machine in Roscommon? <laughs> but yeah, this time machine that, you know, he goes to the other world, but when he comes back, it's a different time. You know, there's possibly Doctor Who material. Oh, very here. much. Anything that relates to engaging with the other world I think is, is just it, it's very very fascinating and it's something that really captures the mind because as you say it's not hell it's not Hades it's not Valhalla it's nothing of these foreign, foreign tropes you don't have to die to go there in certain places there are physical locations in the Irish landscape that are attached to this other world or you could get lost in a fog or yeah. you could a snowstorm if you're Finn yeah. uh, you can um, get lost in a mist like uh, Cormac did. You can just cross to a island, especially if it's a an island in a lake in a river. But getting back is another problem, isn't it? You yeah, could come back in three hundred years' time next Tuesday or Friday week. You can slip into it very easily, but you know, woe betide how how you manage to get yourself back and what version of of getting back is available to you when you, when you do come back. Uh, yeah, like, and I mean, whether whether you bring what you bring back is useful to you or not. Right. 
yeah, yeah. Um, or what comes out once you've opened the door, what else might come out? Think of uh, <laughs> the cats in the uh, Cats of Croken, you know, as part of Recru. It, but it's what I like about it. It's it's almost this this other world of the imagination which lies alongside the everyday world of action and adventure. It's just there, and it's it's and it needs a poet storyteller to link the two. And if the two don't work together. The land loses its fertility, its balance, and its creativity, I suppose. So it ha- it's a wonderful symbol because the, the other world characters, they're not all-knowing gods and goddesses. Yeah. They're ordinary people in their own right who live there, and they, but they have other skill sets which may or may not be useful. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose keeping the, the, these two dimensions, these two parallel dimensions in balance is what leads to a happy world and a happy yeah. life. And I, I think that's there's, there's, there's an awful amount that can be taken from that and applied to, to real life. And events. I think was by the storytellers back then. Completely, yeah. Um, Villa, yeah right. or whatever you want to call them, it's just a useful term. What I love about Nero is he, go, he goes back of his own choice. That's Once right. the job's yeah. done, he goes, no, nah, I think I preferred what was going on in the other world. And he disappears off back there. It's great. That's it. Have you any other favourites or favourite characters? Well, I I do certainly like anything to do with Freya. I I think it was those moments when in engaging in monuments and looking at monuments that have Freya associations and and then seeing a very deliberate and definite line between this Connacht warrior and a whole later attachment by the the Gaelic kings of later medieval Connacht attaching themselves to this great heroic figure. That's really, he really opened his mind up. I think he must have been one of these characters who has a greater significance perhaps than we're aware of now. Yeah, because yeah. you know he becomes this international character who leads an army over over the Swiss Alps, if I remember yeah. rightly. Exactly, yeah, exactly, yeah. And I think, like in 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 many respects, what what we're seeing in the text and in the textual versions of the Thorn, maybe you know, veiling or hiding a little bit of what his true character was, because I mean, it it it's obviously something in the mindset of the later medieval kings and lords of Middle Connacht or Macro Connacht is is. They're they're actually attaching themselves very deliberately to this individual, who just seems to be that little bit more than a Connacht warrior. It it seems as if he may actually have some sort of a a regal or royal role that's it just didn't come down to us in written form. Because when you consider the fact that he's mentioned on the Olm Stone at the entrance to Ornagat, he's mentioned as as the the inauguration mound for the O'Connor kings at Cairn Free. He's mentioned at Clunefree, which is one of their great residences. Amongst other locations within the area, it's a case that later society are seeking to attach themselves to Freyach. And albeit he has a cattle raiding story of his own, it's a case that he seems to have another story that unfortunately written has written got well. lost. That's yeah. No, I, I think there are characters. I have this big thing about Mither, who I think was far, far more important in his stories I think because uh, when the Normans arrived, they 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 didn't mind about the uh, the pre-Christian stories. That didn't bother them so much. But anything that went against Norman law got squished rather rather hard. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I think in some ways Mananam was brought in to replace Mither because he wasn't really so Irish. You know, he <laughs> was he came from out. He was a, a one of we, what, what his older and I used to refer to as a shiny foreigner. <laughs> shiny outsider he was brought in and became very important but wasn't indigenous if you know what i mean 
Yes, and I mean, I, I think I think one of the things that uh, my colleague Mike and and I are, are trying to tease apart is is uh, something similar but rather controversial in the terms of Ferdia, and whether Ferdia maybe has a little bit of the the, the shiny newcomer uh, to uh. the to the thorn when perhaps perhaps it it might be a title or or someone who is of a suitable rank to oppose Cucullan might be more along the lines of Freoch, but we we need to kind of bring that. But we, we need to kind of bring Yeah, this. and we have the same in um, Moitura, that mm. the, the Breed's son, Ruothorn, was obviously once very central, but has almost been pushed to one side by Lou coming in and becoming the great hero. But again, he may have originally been the red-haired boy, the, the sun child in winter, who was yes. uh, Ruothorn, who is a fascinating character who dies in the, in the forge. Uh, any others? Uh, I, I always I always do like the uh, the nature in which the Thorn is returned to us in 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 the the son of Shenikan Torpest going to the the burial mound of Fergus MacRee at the shores of Ain Loch, and I, I that that particular story and that kind of collection of material and the fact then that Ain Loch or Loch Nanan serves as the setting for both an O'Connor Cranog and also the the sighting for Roscommon Castle. That just blows my mind in a sense that there's, there's this level of importance placed on this lake that has otherworldly associations again to go back to a previous point. The fact that Fergus, albeit he has this huge long backstory which is too long for us to relate today, I do like the fact that a, a, a zombie exile king of Ulster emits himself up out of a, a burial mound in, in Roscommon <laughs> uh, to, to relay the story. And you can just picture it in your mind. And, you know, the, the ghoulish nature of it all, I just think of it is, is just phenomenal. Whenever we used to talk about Fergus, I would always add, poor Fergus. <laughs> <laughs> He's the great, tragic, oh, yeah. Yeah, honourable yeah. hero. Yes. And he ends up, as you say, as a zombie. Yeah. Oh, like, yeah. A, not exactly a resurrected no. figure. Yeah. But again, he is the one who is honest enough. He is the the honest broker, if you like. I think. I I I, I love I love picturing that, and I love I love that kind of nature, and even the setting for it, and the whole lot. It it just speaks to me a lot. No, that's that's uh, really good. But then, of course, you know, we've got this wonderful landscape which we can read here in Ireland, and of course, we have another. Um, amazing resource i mean the dinyanica stories support and back so much they're embedded absolutely embedded in the landscape completely so yeah and i, I think i think when you have this rich corpus material I, I i think it's 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 behooven in us as as those interested to to actually dive as deep as possible and take on the dinyanicas and take on all those other pieces of literature and research that are given to us, but not necessarily always as well spoken about. For us as, as, as tour guides and so on, we can relay the tone backwards and frontwards. And, and when you're trying to, you know, answer those difficult questions, the Denshenikas often comes into the in, into play and you have it in your back pocket as a means of uh, explaining those little bits of extra information that are required just, just to provide that final uh, finishing touch of importance. The fact that this is such an important body of work suggests to me that it was always very important that the stories were part of the creation of the landscape. Yeah. It, it, very, very few mythologies in any country have this level. Completely. And uh, the, one of the sad things that I, I consider of, of modern Ireland is, is the fact that 
you know, not 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 only do people are slow, they're slowly forgetting, would say their 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 townland names. Oh, this is my big thing. The, the yeah, the air code. It the may code, be useful, yeah. but it is information poor. It's very much so. Yeah, empty and, of yeah. information. And the one thing that I was so impressed, in, you know, when I first came to Ireland, was the townland system. It holds so much rich and descriptive information, and it's very close to being lost. I mean, I think people have practically given up on field names, but I'm afraid this is probably a boat that's, you know... It is something now that as the, as the Farm and Rathcrohan EIP project, we have flagged with our 45 farmers that we want all our field names collected for, for the Rathcrohan core at least. And it'll be interesting once that data is collected and, and kind of mapped out as to what it might be able to tell us. Because, you know, when when we talk about the great narrative with the local people, the local people are coming back to us occasionally and they're saying, well, actually it may have bathed over there or a certain activity that we know loomed large in the local kind of folklore and the local folk stories and um, might necessarily be something that we're familiar with or remember or are, are knowledgeable about. They're actually holding it on to it because their grandparents and great grandparents have held on to it and are able to impart that back to us. Well, they, they carry they carry information. Yeah, completely. Uh, the yeah. air code carries nothing. Yeah, so really, this is what we've got. The advantage is being able to read the landscape here in Ireland with, because we've got such a rich resource and long may it remain. Absolutely, yeah. And, and, and long way we, we value it. Uh, I think it's, it's a case that, you know, when you speak of, you know, the Dinshenikas, you speak of the, the, the literary sources, um, the Thorn and, and others, the Ulster Cycle, the Fenian Cycle. Unfortunately, they, they don't loom large as, as, as a part of our past that we need to preserve and better understand and promote and the way it should. I mean, there's so many opportunities that we can engage in to try and promote this if we allow it to be vibrant. Because we, we have the Thorn March Walking Festival, which you're involved with, Chris, and we're involved here. Events like that, showcases and programmes along those lines, need to be preserved and need to be lauded because at the end of the day, that's what makes us unique. That's what carries our identity. And It's this continuity in Ireland. It's mm. uh, in many ways, we there's a lot that hasn't changed that is unique. Just It just deserves preserving. Preserving sometimes sounds as a, as a passive act or something that, you know, you put something in a glass jar, but it deserves to be made and continue to be made vibrant. I remember the first time I sat down properly to read Kinsella's Thorn, I was on a flight. One of my first duties, I suppose, to work here was to get myself deeply invested in what the Thorn was about. Whereas when you're at the car park at Rathcrohan or you're at the top of Rathcrohan Mound or at the entrance to the cave at Onlagoth or standing at the top of uh, Carnakeet in Carnakeet Townland, it's, it's there where the story is vivid and understandable and is in its rightful place. And be- because it's a story in the landscape, it's not a story of the past. It's part of our own story and it goes on. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely it does. Yeah. And um, that's what we need to we need to be aware of and, and need to kind of cherish, really, I think. Well, look, it's been absolutely great talking with you. And I hope we're going to catch up face to face before long. It seems like a long time, but uh, yeah. that's just the way it is. But hopefully things start to go back to, I don't think they're going to go back but they're going to get uh, they're going to develop so that we can all meet up again before long. But thanks Daniel, it's been great to have this conversation. There's so much uh, thank you so much Chris for for allowing us the opportunity because I mean it's it's 
it's it's so valuable and it's it's great to be part of uh, these types of conversations. Well, I'll put up any information. I'll put up information about uh, the Rathcroft Centre and the activities that go, that go on there as part of this uh, conversation. So, thank you very much. That's um, thank you, Daniel. Thank you for listening to this Stories in the Landscape conversation. Remember, on www.storyarchaeology.com, you will be able to access the whole archive of Story Archaeology podcasts. You can also explore a wide selection of my audio and video stories for children, as well as a range of project and support materials for schools. Also, discover information on a number of international arts events and competitions with which Story Archaeology is closely linked. There will be another Stories in the Landscape conversation along soon.